The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Johnny Clem ran away from his Newark, Ohio home in 1860. He was nine years old. When war broke out the following year, he attempted to join the U.S. Army, but was rejected. Undeterred, the determined 10-year-old tagged along with the 22nd Michigan Volunteer Infantry until he was finally adopted as its mascot and drummer. He was supplied with a scaled-down uniform and a shortened rifle. Clem distinguished himself at the Battle of Shiloh, where an artillery shell destroyed his drum. Newspapers got a hold of his story and soon he became known as the Drummer Boy of Shiloh. Clem gained further renown at the Battle of Chickamauga in Georgia. In the thickest of the fighting, three bullets passed through his cap without doing him any harm. Separated from his unit, he escaped capture when he shot and killed a Confederate soldier who ordered him to halt. Newspapers now labeled him the Drummer Boy of Chickamauga. Little Johnny Clem's luck ran out a month later when he was captured by Confederate cavalry while he was serving as a train guard. He was freed in a prisoner exchange a short time later, but not before the Confederates held him up as evidence that the North was so desperate that it would enlist children in its fight. Clem was rewarded with advancement to the rank of sergeant and assigned to the headquarters of the Army of the Cumberland. Clem left the Army in 1864, then rejoined it again in 1871 as a second lieutenant. He rose in rank to Brigadier General, becoming Assistant Quartermaster General of the United States Army in 1903. He retired from the Army in 1915 and died at age 85 in San Antonio, Texas in 1937. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. There is a story, a legend, about a drummer boy at Shiloh 
But this is not necessarily the story of Johnny Clem, or as he became known, Johnny Shiloh. Though foreign to modern sensibilities, prior to the Civil War and even for a while after, it was not uncommon to find children hard at work in the fields and in factories in America. When the war came, many youths, motivated by a yearning for adventure and glory, volunteered for service on both sides. So long as they looked old enough, recruiters were inclined to turn a blind eye to their age. Boys too young or too small to pass muster could still hope to be taken on as a drummer boy or maybe even a bugler. Though considered non-combatants, the drummer boy was exposed to as much danger, if not more, than the average soldier. He was out in front of the line so that his drum rolls could be heard. and He was with the man who bore the flag. The drummer was often more exposed to fire than the rest of the regiment. These young boys were renowned for their courage, most famous being the one I've mentioned earlier, Johnny Clem, sometimes called Johnny Shiloh or the drummer boy of Chickamauga. A drummer on the Union side, his exploits on the battlefield won him fame and a promotion to regular service, which led to a very long career in the U.S. military. The story of Johnny Clem ought not to be confused with that of the drummer boy of Shiloh. This latter hero remains anonymous, and most historians have relegated him to the status of legend. Folks say this drummer boy still lingers on in Shiloh's placid fields. Who was the phantom drummer, and why does he haunt those green fields so far from home? To delve into the truth of the matter, one must go back to the fateful days of early April 1862. It's not generally recounted, but there were, in fact, two battles of Shiloh fought back to back. The first was fought by Grant's Army of the Tennessee, a battle that Grant lost. The succeeding fight was won by General Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio the next day. The Union Army would sometimes call one battle a certain name, while the Confederates called the same battle a different name. This is the case with Shiloh. The South called it Shiloh. The North called it Pittsburgh Landing. Early on April 6th, the Army of the Tennessee was sleeping peacefully in their tents when a surprise assault was launched by a massive combined force of Confederates under General Albert Sidney Johnston. In the ensuing rout, Grant's army was nearly annihilated. Grant himself, hung over some say, did not appear on the battlefield for several hours after it had begun. It was only a massed barrage of heavy artillery that halted the Confederate onslaught. Grant's army had been pushed back to a small toehold around the steamboat dock at Pittsburgh Landing. By any definition of the term, Grant's was a defeated army. Luckily, Don Carlos Buell's 55,000-man Army of the Ohio arrived on the other bank of the Tennessee River after a 122-mile march from Nashville. As soon as they were ferried across the river, Buell's undefeated troops went into the line at Shiloh bolstering the shattered remnants of Grant's command. What Buell's men saw as they arrived was not so much an army as a terror-stricken mob. Ten thousand or more men, leaderless and broken, were huddled around the landing in a pouring rain, 
Many preferred to take a bullet in the head for deserting than go back into the line of battle. But as a new day arrived, Buell's Midwesterners turned defeat into victory. They counterattacked, driving the depleted rebel troops back over the blood-soaked ground. It was on this second day of battle, the second Shiloh, that a drummer boy with one of Buell's regiments was ordered to sound the drum roll attack. The young boy, the drum nearly dwarfing his small frame, grabbed his drumsticks and dutifully obeyed. In response, a cohort of blue-clad men moved forward as one, left feet first, lines properly dressed and marching forward with neat precision, just as they had been drilled so many times before in camp. With bayonets fixed and muskets primed and loaded, the regiment advanced on a crucial Confederate position near Shiloh Church, but as they neared the position, resistance increased and the Federals became stalled on the side of a slope. Over the din of battle, the officer yelled to the drummer boy to sound the drum roll for retreat. The boy hesitated a second, then picked up his sticks again and began to beat out a call. Attack! The officer bellowed at the poor boy. Had he not heard the order to sound a retreat? Indeed, sir, pleaded the boy, but attack is all I know. I never learned to retreat. By now it was too late to recall the men. To the wonder of the officer, the well-trained regiment had resumed their advance, charging uphill despite withering fire from the heights above. To everyone's surprise, the regiment reached the Confederate position and after a short, sharp fight, drove the rebels back. With that commanding height in place, the course of the battle turned to the favor of the Federals. When the smoke cleared and the regiment reformed, the commander sought out the drummer boy to commend him. He found the youth. The boy lay dead upon the hillside, drumsticks still in hand, with his drum beside him and a bullet to his heart. Historians may scoff at the tale today, but it is a tradition handed down from the time of the battle, and there is testimony that tends to corroborate the story. During the 1940s, a construction crew putting in a new road through the park uncovered a body. At that time, the person overseeing the park was a man named Captain Rice. A journalist visiting Rice about this time had happened to inquire about the legend of the drummer boy of Shiloh, and in answer to the question, Rice showed him the remains. Smaller than an adult skeleton, there was no question that it had once been a child. Most organic matter had long since rotted, flesh, clothing, and wooden drum. But around its neck were pieces of the drum cord and a lead bullet lodged in its chest where the heart had once been. Captain Rice never made the find public, but he and the journalist were convinced it was proof of the legend. Every legend, they say, has its basis, in fact, and if the drummer boy's story be true, then the other half of the tale is credible as well. For decades, visitors to Shiloh in the spring have from time to time heard the distant roll of a drum, the staccato beats wafting on soft spring air. It adds to the realism of the battlefield, visitors have said, complimenting the staff on such a neat little touch. But no such enhancement was ever authorized for the tours, and the reenactors do not normally encamp there so early in the season. 
Those who know say it is the phantom drummer boy dutifully thumping away on his drum, calling forth a spectral army in the attack. Across the open fields, sounds of phantom drums and ghostly gunfire are still heard on occasion. Only a few have actually experienced it, but those who have heard the sound of the phantom drummer boy are certain of what they heard. The phantom drummer boy is not the only spectral phenomenon observed at Shiloh, to be sure. They are all indications to us that, if memory of the horror of Shiloh has long since faded from the living, for the dead, it is still a most vivid and current event, a memory that rumbles through the halls of eternity like a distant drum roll. When the autumn days turn crisp, the nights frosty, and the shadows grow long upon the land, folks along the Tennessee border get to talking about the old days. One of the tales they tell is a story of Smoot's ghost. In 1820, the Wheatley family founded its farm, named Oaklands, in the northern part of Montgomery County, Tennessee, just below the Kentucky border. A few years before the war, a man named John Walton Barker bought Oakland's plantation from the Wheatleys. Barker, busy with other ventures, soon hired a man to run the place, a man named Smoot. By all accounts, Smoot was a most conscientious overseer. He was hard-working and honest, and he drove his field hands no harder than he drove himself. He never married, though, and running a farm can be a lonely life for a man like him. Aside from slaves and the hogs, Smoot had little company and no close friends. When the war broke out in 1861, nothing changed much at first. The soil still needed tilling, the tobacco still needed curing, and the hogs, it seemed, needed to be fed just about constantly. But in February of 1862, when the Yankees took Forts Donaldson and Henry downriver and occupied nearby Clarksville, the situation changed. Slaves from Oakland ran off to be contraband with the Union Army, leaving old Smoot to run the farm by himself. Now his only company was the hogs. Old Smoot did the best he could to run the farm alone, including slopping the hogs. But the going was not easy, and what with the Yankee patrols and local guerrilla bands, it could be downright dangerous at times. Neighboring farmers did not see Smoot every day, so no one at first was unduly alarmed about his welfare when he did not come in town on market day as usual. When a week or so passed, however, and no one had seen hiding or hair of old Smoot, the neighbor folk decided to mosey on over to Oakland's to see if he was all right. Riding up to Oakland's, the men were puzzled. On first glance, everything seemed to be in order. The house and outbuildings looked well kept. The hogs out back seemed well fed. But repeated calls of Smoot's name brought no response. The men dismounted and fanned out in search of the overseer. As they crossed the farmyard, a few of the men noted how active the hogs seemed, uncommonly active, snorting and snuffling with particular gusto. The porkers were engrossed in a feast of some magnitude. That was odd, for how could the hogs be eating if no one was around to feed them? The frenzy with which the hogs were gorging themselves was downright unnerving. Curious, a few of the men walked over to investigate. 
Peering over the split rails of the pen, the neighbors solved the mystery, but wished they hadn't. They found Smoot, or rather, what was left of him. After they extracted Smoot's mangled remains from the pen of frenzied swine, they gave his gnawed and gnarled flesh as decent a burial as they could. The mystery remained, however. What had caused Smoot's demise? Had he died of natural causes? How did he end up in the hog pen? If not, then who did it and why? Marion Henry Hamner, for one, was always certain of the answer. The great-granddaughter of the plantation owner, John Barker, grew up on Oakland's plantation. Mrs. Hamner was always of the opinion that the Yankees were to blame for Smoot's death. During the recent unpleasantness, Yankee and thief were synonymous, at least in that part of the country. Federal foraging parties out of Clarksville constantly combed the countryside, requisitioning livestock for the Union Army and commandeering whatever property they thought fit from hapless farmers. The Yankee patrols were supposed to give civilians script for anything they took. In actual fact, the foragers, sometimes called bummers, were rarely so particular, and if anyone objected too much, they were paid in hot lead. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Mrs. Hamner had no doubt that old Smoot, conscientious to the last, protested the seizure of some plantation plow horses or the contents of the corn crib and was cut down by the invaders in blue. Adding insult to deadly injury, they dumped his body in the hog pen to be devoured by the swine and perhaps to cover up evidence of their own crime. The full story of Smoot's death may never be known. But whatever the truth of the matter, no one in Montgomery County doubts that ever since his grisly demise, strange things have been seen and heard at Oakland's plantation. For while Smoot's remains were laid to rest, his spirit was not. On certain nights of the year, folks have seen eerie lights flickering about Oakland's. On those nights, the weird light can be seen moving to and fro, bobbing about and looking very much like a lantern held aloft. A number of the residents of Peachers Mill Road, where Oakland is, as well as casual passers-by, have seen this spectral light on the plantation. The folks in that neck of the woods will tell you it's old Smoot, still making the early morning rounds on the farm. Mrs. Hamner and some neighboring folk have also heard strange noises in the pen and have seen the flickering light move between the Oakland's family graveyard 
and the site of the old Wheatley Mill. While Mrs. Hamner has never seen Old Smooth herself, on many occasions she has heard his voice calling. Weird sounds emanate from the hog pen where he died as well. All this is, admittedly, most strange, but on Peacher's Mill Road, up along the Kentucky border, it's all par for the course. Smoot is one of several phantoms that haunt the neighborhood. As for Smoot, it is said that he will never rest until he is laid whole in his grave, in which case Smoot will be with us for a long, long time. Before the war, the Montgomery House was a resplendent mansion along a rural lane on the outskirts of Nashville. It had originally been the residence of Mrs. Alexander B. Montgomery, a prominent citizen and loyal daughter of the South. Mrs. Montgomery stayed in her mansion on Cedar Lane for many years, next to what is now the cosmopolitan neighborhood of Belmont. According to one old Confederate veteran, she continued to reside there, in fact, long after she died. She could not leave, it was said, because she had a treasure to protect. Soon after the Yankees seized Fort Donaldson and Fort Henry on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers and occupied Clarksville, Grant's forces quickly moved upstream and seized Nashville, the Confederates having abandoned it without a shot. Many of the local population panicked and fled at the news of the Yankee Army's approach. But not Mrs. Montgomery. This Bell was a confirmed rebel, and she would not be so easily moved. She resolved to make her stand, come what may. One day, however, there was a loud banging at the front door. Yankee officers from the Army Provost Marshal announced that, by order of the military governor, Montgomery House would be turned into a hospital. Mrs. Montgomery was ordered to vacate the premises within 24 hours. Rather than let the Yankees have her ancestral home and liberty to loot it at will, not to mention providing aid and comfort to the enemy, Mrs. Montgomery stripped the house of all of its belongings and buried the family silver and other valuables in the rose garden. This done, she then set fire to her home. After freeing her slaves, Mrs. Montgomery then set out along the Natchez Trace with whatever she could carry with her. Unfortunately, as she was crossing over the no-man's land separating the two contending armies, she was caught in a brief but bitter skirmish. In the midst of the fray, she was beheaded by a stray cannonball. Now, local legend held that since that terrible day, the spirit of Mrs. Alexander Montgomery was unable to get away from her ancestral home, charred shell though it may have been. From time to time, passers-by see a headless specter wandering the grounds and outbuildings of the Montgomery place. She haunts the grounds, they say, because she is guarding treasure buried somewhere on the property. Legends of restless revenants and buried treasure abound, especially in the south. One is tempted to dismiss the headless phantom of Cedar Lane as just another fable, but some years back, some local good old boys resolved to test the old legend and see for themselves if the headless bell was indeed guarding a buried hoard. On a dark night, they crept in, shovel and pick in hand, onto the little lane off Belmont Boulevard. The rose garden was now a tangle of thorns and thistles, where it once had been neatly tended formal garden. 
With one eye out for a headless guardian spirit, the men dug and dug. Finally, to their surprise, they hit something solid. In the dim light of their oil lamps, the white glint of metal shone from the ground. They had indeed found a cache of silver coins, serving spoons, and other items that had once been the domestic service of Mrs. Montgomery. The men kept quiet about their find and sold most of it for cash, but a few pieces kept as souvenirs and handed down to their children remained as physical evidence to the veracity of the tales told about the old Montgomery place. Once the treasure was exposed to the light of day, the spirit of its former owner was freed from her guardianship of it. She has never been sighted since. Today, there survive only a few serving spoons as proof of the truth of the headless phantom of Cedar Lane. Mourn ye the blood on this steel-rusted blade, tis all that's left of the Irish Brigade, wrote Major Lawrence Reynolds. The Battle of Antietam, fought on September 17, 1862, was the bloodiest day in American history. Between sunrise and sunset, some 24,000 men were killed, wounded, or captured. The number of casualties at Antietam alone exceeded the total number of dead from all three of the nation's previous wars combined, the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Mexican War. Many were the heroic deeds done that day. Many more were the groans of the wounded and dying when the shooting stopped. Farmhouses and churches were overflowing with the mass of casualties, and even then, the wounded overflowed to the surrounding grounds. In the fields, the ground was thick with a newly mown harvest of death. While much has been written of many deeds done that day, none more bold or braver or more futile than the charge of the Irish Brigade against the rebel line at Bloody Lane. In the mid-19th century, large numbers of Irish, like the Germans, came to America in search of a better life and political liberties. Although looked down upon by the Anglo-Saxon majority, both groups eagerly flocked to the flag when the Union was threatened with secession in 1861. Now to be honest, there were probably just as many Irish on the Confederate side as on the Northern side. Large numbers of Irish volunteered for service with the 69th New York Militia. Although only in service a brief time, they acquitted themselves honorably at first bull run. The regiment was later reformed along more permanent lines and then joined with similar units to form the legendary Irish Brigade. When the Confederates under General Robert E. Lee crossed the Potomac in the late summer of 1862 and invaded Maryland, the Irish Brigade was among those Union forces that marched to stop General Lee's advance. The dawn of September 17th saw the Army of Northern Virginia on the defensive, holding a line along Antietam Creek near the small community of Sharpsburg. For once, George McClellan, the Union commander, went on the offensive, hurling his huge force against Lee's prepared positions. Now, McClellan had gotten a reputation of sitting back and waiting to see what would happen without taking action, so he was not real popular with a lot of people. By mid-morning, the focus of the action had shifted to the center of the line, where General Sumner's 2nd Corps charged against D.H. Hill's Alabamians and North Carolinians. Although outnumbered by Sumner's Federals, 
the Southerners had found a strong position, a sunken road running southeast of the roulette farm and forming a newly made trench that faced an open field. The Irish Brigade was ordered to attack across this field. They had earned a reputation for reckless bravery, and they more than justified it this day. Charging headlong across some 350 yards, that's three and a half football fields, of flat, featureless ground, the Irish endured a withering fire. The blue-clad ranks fell by the score, but for nearly four hours, the Irish Brigade, emboldened by their weird battle cry and their emerald green banner, pressed their attack, losing 60% of their men in the process. The sunken road the Irish men fought so hard to gain that day earned the name Bloody Lane as a result. After the battle, it was said one could walk end to end along the lane without ever touching the ground so thick it was with corpses. According to tradition, Lee asked what regiment had led the gallant charge against Bloody Lane. When he was informed it was the 69th New York, Lee is reputed to have said, Ah yes, the fighting 69th. From that day forth, the regiment retained that nickname. Today, of course, it is hard to imagine that the placid fields and rolling hills which surrounded the picturesque town of Sharpsburg were the scene of so much carnage. The rural scenery and neatly manufactured fields of a national park form a stark contrast to the scenes that Stonewall's staff witnessed at twilight on the 17th. By dusk, the sounds of battle had tapered off, only to be replaced by more terrible sounds the moans and groans of thousands of wounded men. Pitiable cries for water and pleas for help were much more terrible than the deadliest sounds of battle, Henry Kidd Douglas tells us. Silent were the dead and motionless, but here and there were raised stiff arms. Heads made a last effort to lift themselves from the ground. Prayers were mingled with oaths, and midnight hid all distinction between blue and gray. But that is long vanished now, and the fields are host not to the dead and dying, but to children and adults curious to see this particular field of glory. Over the years, many school groups have come to visit Antietam National Battlefield near Sharpsburg, Maryland. For students, it is an edifying and educational experience, a chance to see history come alive. For several years running, one such school, the exclusive McDonough School of Baltimore, Maryland, had routinely visited Antietam on class trips. For the blue-clad boys of the McDonough School, however, the experience has proved to be more than just an academic exercise. In fact, one seventh grade class even taught a thing or two about the supernatural to its teacher. One of the teachers, Mr. O'Brien, was quite knowledgeable about American history and with the aid of local park rangers and volunteer reenactors he put on a comprehensive tour of the famed battlefield. It was a program which combined history, English, and the social sciences. Soon after they arrived at the park the seventh graders would line up in their neat blue blazers and learn the parade drill and the manual of arms. Reenactors would demonstrate how to load and fire a Civil War musket and would give other details of a soldier's life. Then after lunch, the students would tramp about the battlefield trying to absorb highlights from the history of the battle. 
Toward dusk, the McDonough boys would end up at Bloody Lane with the zigzag split rail fence now meticulously restored by the National Park Service. The boys were stationed one to a fence post, allowing them some quiet time to reflect on the day's events. As they walked back to the buses, O'Brien told them to write an essay about what they had learned and what parts of the visit had impressed them the most. With memory of the visit still fresh in their minds, the boys took out their spiral notebooks and on the ride back to Baltimore wrote down their impressions. The essays were quite varied, some even writing bits of poetry. The Bloody Lane loomed large in these essays, it being the last stop on the tour and freshest in their memories. Then, too, the stillness at twilight, it seems, had allowed many of the students to perceive things going on all around them, things that their adult chaperones and teachers were oblivious to. As O'Brien was grading the essays a few days later, he began to notice some curious comments scattered among the papers. Some students mentioned hearing chanting, while others said they heard Christmas carols sung in a foreign language. The boys had not had a chance to talk with each other before writing their papers, so there is no possibility of a practical joke. They had definitely experienced something, but what? As O'Brien compared the accounts, he noticed a common thread. The boys had all heard the caroling in a foreign language as they sat along the fence, bordering Bloody Lane. More specifically, those with the most vivid impressions of the caroling or chanting had been posted along the lane between the Anderson Cannon Monument and the War Department Observation Tower. This, the teacher knew, was the exact segment of the line that the Irish Brigade had made their doom charge against in 1862. A suspicion of what was going on here, however far-fetched it seemed, began to form in the educator's mind. Students on previous trips had also had unusual experiences at that location. One year, for example, seventh graders wrote of smelling the acrid, sulfurous scent of gunpowder along that part of Bloody Lane. In class, the teacher questioned the boys more closely as to what it was they thought they'd heard. Some said they heard an unintelligible chanting or cheering. Many, however, said the invisible voices seemed to be repeating the chorus to deck the halls. Mr. O'Brien asked several students to vocalize the sound for him as they understood it. They rendered it to him as fa-la-la-la, the teacher being somewhat of an expert on the war between the states and the Battle of Antietam in particular, was thunderstruck at what he heard. What O'Brien knew, and what the seventh graders could not possibly have known, was that their chant bore a remarkable resemblance to the Gaelic war cry of the fighting 69th. The war cry of the Irish regiment in English is rendered as clear the way, but in Gaelic it is fa a bala. For an expert steeped in the lore of the Civil War, the parallel was obvious, but no ordinary visitor would have been so well versed, much less a group of 7th graders. In the quiet of the battlefield, sitting before the killing field where 540 men of the Irish Brigade fell before the withering fire of Hill's Corps, the students of McDonough School had heard the war cry of the bold Fenian sons of Aaron, a sound not heard there in over 120 years. The experiences of the 7th graders at Antietam were not an isolated incident, of course. At Pry House, Burnside Bridge, and nearby St. Paul's Episcopal Church, Civil War specters have been reported repeatedly. Even a local bed and breakfast on the field of battle is reputed to be haunted by restless dead of the Civil War. 
While many reliable reports of the supernatural emanate from all over the battlefield at Antietam, the singular experience of the students at McDonough School remain the most credible account to date. In the landscape turned red of Antietam, memory of the valor of the Irish Brigade lingers on in more ways than one. Well, that's all I have to give you this week. I hope you've enjoyed the stories. I will be back next week with more. Have a good week, everyone. Bye-bye. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.